Thank you, Leanna, families, kids. Something happens, right? When you look at a little one, it's kind of pre-rational. You find yourself thinking, feeling, behaving in ways before you know it. Trying to maybe make yourself smaller, your voice tone changes. What you think, how you feel, how you behave when you encounter a little one sort of takes you over, right? Before you know what you're doing. So Jesus, once upon a time, used that to try to produce a very particular change in the people who he was interacting with, who he was trying to shape into a faith community. So we're going to look at that this morning and see what it was he was after when he invited people into an experience of children not dissimilar to what we've had this morning. So the account of this comes from the story of the life of Jesus that's attributed to Matthew uh, in chapter 18. And it goes like this. At that hour, the disciples approached Jesus, saying, Who then is the greater in the kingdom of the heavens? And calling a child forward, Jesus stood the child in their midst. <laughs> Quite a brave child, right? <laughs> Placing a child in the midst of a bunch of competitive men. And Jesus said, Amen, I tell you, unless you turn back and become as children, you most certainly may not enter into the kingdom of the heavens. The one, therefore, who will make themselves small as this child, this one is greater in the kingdom of the heavens. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So if the central instruction of Jesus in this is to become like little children, and if we pay attention to the pictures and the presence that we've just seen of Lucas and Isaac and Asher and Charlie and Eden and Cecilia, <laughs> we must become, I think, first of all, very cute. <laughs> right? <laughs> and at least momentarily happy and perhaps a little bit unusually clean, Now, for me, when I become like a little child, it often looks something like this, okay? That's because I have a grandson. So I have two grandchildren now. You'll be grateful by the end of the morning I don't have more. Um, <laughs> because my, so, so Jerry is my two-year-old two-year-old grandson, when he comes over to our house and he's in a good state of being. So he's just woken up from a nap. He's just finished his baba, which is his word for a bottle, in his vegan family of oat milk. He's clean. He's ready to go. And so Jerry, when he's in a good state of mind, instead of walking, he trots. That's just how he gets around. So when I'm by Jerry and I want to connect with him, which as a grandfather, you know, pre-rational, that's what I want to do, I start trotting. <laughs> and there's this moment where Jerry will look at me a little apprehensively at first, 
But pretty quickly he'll go, oh, grandpa's trotting too, let's go trot. And so we trot down the hallway, we trot back down the hallway, we trot through the living room where the adults are having boring conversation. We trot through the kitchen. Right? It's this powerful effect that I think Jesus understood where me coming into proximity with Jerry causes me, unbidden, to want to be like him. And in this case, in this very particular way. And so Jesus finds himself interacting with a group of adults who are engaged in a kind of behavior that he wants to address. And it's such a deeply embedded, and to him, I think, problematic way of being that he knows he needs to do something other other than just tell them to be different. He needs to do something beyond giving them an instruction or a set of rules or some principles or some guidelines. He even needs to go beyond one of his creative stories, a parable. Jesus needs to produce for the people that he wants to address an experience that takes over their thinking, that takes over their feelings, that takes over, that causes them to behave differently, right? So it's not just the effect of being with a child. It's a specific thing that a child represents or embodies to his followers that Jesus wants to change. Because I think what I've come to realize with what God is doing in the human community through Jesus is whatever Jesus came to fix, whatever problems Jesus came to solve, something more fundamental or elemental that God is doing to, for, on our behalf through Jesus is to produce and enable the possibility of being a different kind of human. Right? It's not just to solve problems. That's not the thing that God is primarily about through Jesus. It's making you and I, causing you and I to be able to be different fundamentally as human beings with each other in the world. Okay? And so that's what Jesus is trying to produce in his followers, to show them this is what I'm after and this is how you might get there. <clears throat> and the specific injunction is to become small, which turns out to be really hard. So the moment that we're encountering comes on the heels of a really bad day for Jesus' disciples. Jesus has been on vacation for the weekend, and so he's left his trainees, his friends, kind of managing affairs, which turns out to not go so well. People come to Jesus' disciples while Jesus is away with a problem that everybody thinks they should be able to solve because they've been trained by Jesus. So the people coming for help, the disciples themselves, presumably Jesus, even while he's away, they bring a particular kind of problem to the disciples, and the disciples, in trying to solve it, fail miserably. It's just a disaster. They don't know what to do. They're confused. They don't have the power that they think they need to have. And so everybody's frustrated. The people that came to them for help are frustrated. The disciples themselves are going, oh, why couldn't we solve this problem? Jesus comes back from vacation and finds things a mess. So he's quite upset. Nonetheless, 
after Jesus cleans up the mess, within sort of a metaphorical like 10 minutes, the disciples are engaged in a very well-worn path of conversation. <laughs> Given Jesus, we're, you know, so we're followers of you, Jesus. We're well-connected to you. Given that, that means that we're in good with God. Like our good standing with God, our entry into the good place, that's guaranteed. Right? We don't have any doubt about that. That whatever goodness God is bringing into the world, whatever it means to be in good standing with God, in the good place with God, the kingdom of heaven, our access to that is assured. But the thing for us is no matter where we are. So once we get there, the question that we have for you is how in that setting do we or I become greatest? How do I take up more space? How do I become more? And so it's a matter for them of comparison, right? It's not this sort of independent, just within me, how do I become satisfied? You would think, conceptualizing the kingdom of heaven, that no matter who is there, life would be good. But for these followers of Jesus, their question is, in comparison to my friends, in comparison to my peers, how do I get more than them? More of whatever it is. More power, more prestige, more recognition by you, more influence, more whatever, however money or possessions are represented there. How do I get more? And it's this that Jesus sees is a problem. And it's a central problem. It's one that he encounters and highlights again and again and again. It may be in his interaction with humankind, what he conceives of as being the central problem. The problem of humankind is this competing, this rivalrousness, this need for validation or feeling good about myself because I have more than you, which means you have less. And it's not just a trivial problem. <laughs> You know, when Jesus addresses the disciples, he says to them, you guys have actually run like 10 steps down the road. Jesus says to them, it's not just that this will mess things up once you get there. Unless you get this right, unless you see this in yourself and do what I'm trying to represent through this child, which is making yourself small, you won't even get in you don't even have access to the goodness that God provides. There's a, a moment in a favorite book of mine and many where this is represented very concretely, sort of metaphorically, but you know, through an image, but really concretely, it's Alice in Wonderland. So Alice has found her way down the rabbit hole and she pretty quickly comes into a hallway that's filled with doors. And the story goes like this. Suddenly she came upon a little three-legged table all made of solid glass. There was nothing on it except a tiny golden key. And Alice's first thought was that it might belong to one of the doors of the hall. But alas, either the locks were too large or the key was too small. But at any rate, it would not open any of them. However, on the second time round, she came upon a low curtain she had not noticed before. And behind it was a little door about 15 inches high. She tried the little golden key in the lock, and to her great delight, it fitted. 
Alice opened the door and found that it led into a small passage, not much larger than a rat hole. She knelt down and looked along the passage into the loveliest garden you ever saw. How she longed to get out of that dark hall and wander about among those beds of bright flowers and those cool fountains, but she could not even get her head through the doorway. And even if my head would go through, thought poor Alice, it would be of very little use without my shoulders. <laughs> oh, how I wish I could shut up like a telescope. I think I could if I only knew how to begin. Right? And so this is Alice's travail, <laughs> getting to the right size so that she can use the key to get through the door into the magical garden. And I found myself as I was putting myself with Jesus' friends, hearing him say what he was saying, feeling in my own self this same consternation or kind of destabilization. Because my, my whole life, like sort of my wiring as a human being, but, and then how I have been trained to behave as a human being is exactly the opposite. I have been trained and my sense of myself depends on taking up more space, filling up the space in the room, inflating my voice, inflating my presence. You know, and in addition to just being human, I have a lot of, uh, I can tick a lot of demographic boxes that have increased this impulse in me. I'm male, I'm the oldest sibling in my family, I am white, I am heterosexual, I am well-educated, I'm affluent. I could go on. Just a whole lot of things that conspire with my human nature so that across the course of my life, I have been trained. I have all sorts of tools and abilities, things I know to do to put myself forward, to increase my presence. And, and I can even do it while trying to appear not to be competitive, right? I know how to do that. I know how to play that game. And so when I hear Jesus saying, yeah, the way things happen in the kingdom of heaven to access goodness, you need to be a fundamentally different kind of human being. And you need to know how to make yourself small. I look within myself and I get kind of panicky. Because <laughs> I think, I've got a whole array of tools to make myself big. I don't have anything within me to make myself small. I don't know how to do that. I don't know what that's like. I don't know how to talk in a way to make myself small, how to behave. How... I don't have the infrastructure to be human in this way that Jesus is calling me to be. Right? It's quite... A dramatic ask, I think, that Jesus makes of his followers and of us. But it seems to be pretty essential in his conceptualization of God and of the God community that we do this, that we understand this. So a couple of caveats before, <laughs> before we get to my granddaughter. Um, the first is... <clears throat> There are certainly ways of human beings being diminished that come from brokenness and harm 
that I don't think Jesus is talking about at all, right? I mean, by the nature of what Jesus is describing, those who succeed at making themselves greater have succeeded in making others less. And so when diminishment is caused by power or domination in a systemic way, we look at that and we say, yeah, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. That is a wrong that we seek to fix, to address. The same thing can happen for us as individuals. If we've been harmed, if we've been traumatized, if we've been shamed, if we've been humiliated, we can recoil from having a voice, having a presence, being perceived or observed. I grew up, I grew up um, Dutch Reformed. It is a cultural prohibition to have attention come to yourself. Right? You are shamed if that happens, and so you learn it's a triggering thing then, an activating thing if somebody notices you, ah. So when there are diminishings that occur because of brokenness, harm, systemic or individual, we seek healing and justice and restitution. But given that, there still is this possibility of a vision for a way of being human and doing the human community that I think is pretty alluring that Jesus invites us into. And so I think of some of the things that have come to me that have begun to be helpful in my life. They're the things we talk about often. Aidy invited us a couple of weeks ago from up here into spiritual practices, something that's become super meaningful to her and to me across time, particularly in my, in my mature adulthood. Um, I think about spiritual practices and what they're designed to do. There are ways to think about them, that, you know, how we conceptualize them. We have practices of silence or contemplation or fasting. And you can think of them as, well, you pull out of the chaos of the world, out of the swirl around you. You come to a place of peacefulness. But I also think about them in this light. If I refrain from talking from speaking for a day or, you know, <laughs> a half an hour, whatever I can pull off, right? It is a way of diminishing myself so that maybe I can experience the goodness that God would bring to me. If I fast, I stop consuming, I stop bringing stuff into myself. I think of counseling. You know, we talk about that. Counseling, therapy, getting help from somebody else, Understanding yourself, knowing who you are, why you behave the way you do, paying attention to that. So much of it, at least for me, is, is my need to be known, my need to take up space is often triggered by anxiety, driven by worries or fears. What happens if that's not the case? If I become less, where do I go? And if I can contend with those worries, fears, anxieties, those senses of threat, Maybe I can inhabit this a little bit more. Maybe I can do it. Jesus adds, like, he really adds forcefulness to why you should do this. He envisions, I think, what will happen if a community actually embraces this way of being, this intentional self-diminishing, intentionally making yourself small. Because as a, if you do this, you will be able to recognize it in others. And when you see it in others, I want you to know that's me. 
When you see someone who, has, who is inhabiting smallness, I want you to think of them as me. Like, that is me, and I want you then to go welcome them. So it's this whole reversal of how you and I normally do business socially together that could be just remarkable. I get a little taste of this. <clears throat> so this is my Madeline story. And again, I only have two grandchildren, so... <laughs> this is where it ends. She brings the magic, right? So Madeline is four years old, Jerry's older sister, and she just lives in a world that's dripping with magic. I think it's at least in part because her grandfather has told her that that's the case. So, <laughs> so when we're together, the moonlight is magical, sun, the, the stars drip down magic, forest, walking through the forest is magic. Rocks are magical, especially the white, you know, quartz ones. <clears throat> but then water, like holy cow, water is just magic on steroids. Whether it's rain that you're out in or um, swimming. Grandpa likes to swim, so the lake is, oh, all water is magic. Waterfalls, magic just pouring down on you. And it's easy for her, right? It's easy for her to believe in a world of magic. So when I become like Madeline, I inhabit a world that is filled with magic, where magic is possible. And as an adult, in the world as it is, I find that really helpful. Because it is easy today, right, for the world to be leached of magic. It's just filled with travail and disappointment and things don't go as you think they're supposed to go. And how does God interact with it all anyways? But when I'm with her, it's like kind of being at the, uh, when you get an eye exam at the optometrist and they flip those things in front of you. you know, do you see better with A or B or A or B? And it's like magic, not magic, magic, not magic. <clears throat> I'm going to choose magic. It is a choice. Inhabiting, being like a child, going through that door, having the key, Inhabiting a world where magic is possible. For Jesus to be Jesus, for God to help us, for us to go into the kingdom of heaven, it has to be a place where, like a little child, magic is possible. Right? So that's our invitation this morning. I'm just going to leave a moment. I'll invite us into a moment, you as you're sitting here, of reflection. Right? Maybe bring to mind a child, someone close to you, someone you know, someone you can see. What would it mean for you to be like that person, to be like that child? What happens to you? Can you be aware of that? Can anything in what it seems like Jesus was after come into you, shape how you think, feel, behave, how you interact with others, how you carry yourself? Can you learn what it might be like for you, even just a little bit, to diminish yourself or to inhabit a world of magic, okay? So Jesus, we come to you. Thank you that you love children so deeply, that you become like them, that you understand children, that you value them, you value the little ones um, who were in front of us this morning. We just give you a moment to help us know what it would be like for us to become like children.
today.